Just a note for next week, we'll be starting in Mitzvah just as Marib is getting later, so I think that makes sense to start this year at 8.15. So still plenty of time for gathering our sushi beforehand, but hopefully this way we'll start more on time. The, uh, the topic this evening is Lagba Omer, uh, the celebration of Lagba Omer, which begins this evening. We just counted the 33rd day of the Omer. What exactly are we celebrating? What is the source of the joy? Where does it come from? What is the background behind it? And uh, what I'd like to do is start off with the Gemara. And as we go through some of these sources, we have to try to, to keep an open mind. What, what, what do I mean by an open mind? It's the way it works in life is sometimes when you've seen a source before and now you're seeing it again, we kind of tune out. We kind of shut down because I know it. There will be a handful of sources here that many of you have at least heard about before. Some of the storyline, some of the, uh, the basic insights and, and origins of Lagba Omer, Rabbi Akiva. But the goal here is to try to keep an open mind because we're going to see a new insight, a new angle, a new depth behind things that we might have had on some superficial level. The goal tonight is to get it a lot deeper and to really understand it. The famous Gemara Nivamos tells us that Rabbi Akiva, he taught the, uh, the basic notion that even if you have disciples when you're young, you have to make sure to have more Talmidim and teach more Torah when you're older. Because you never know who are the main Talmidim, who are going to be the ones to really carry the torch. Gemara tells us the tragic episode that he had his yeshiva of 24,000 students. And within the short period of time between Pesach and Shavuos, all 24,000 students passed away. There was a massive epidemic, and his yeshiva was devastated, it was ruined, it was destroyed, he had nothing left. The phrase of the Gemara is, olam shomeim, the, the world was desolate. It wasn't just the loss of life, but the world was destroyed. Until Rabbi Akiva went down south, and he found five new disciples, and he began to teach them Torah. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Lazar ben Shemua, these are some of the five names we hear all throughout the Mishnayis. Vehem heim hemidu Torah ososhah, and they were the ones to uphold the Torah at that point in history. So we know that the quasi-morning we have during Sviras Omer comes from this episode in history. However, we also know that we didn't begin observing this Avelus right away. It wasn't until fairly recently, in the 11th century, did we take on this custom of having quasi-morning, really keeping in mind the Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. Comes along the 33rd day of the Omer, and the Shulchan Aruch tells us that Noagim Shalom Listaper Adlamid Gimel Omer. We have the custom not to shave until the 33rd day. Why? What's special about that particular day? Sheomrim Sheoz Paskumilomos. Because it's said that on that day, the Talmidim, the disciples of Rabbi Akiva, they stopped dying. 
And therefore, explains the Ramah, Umar bimbo kitzah simcha, we, uh, we make it a little bit of a celebration, ve'ein omrim bo tachnun, and we don't say tachnun. If it's a Monday or a Thursday, it's a greater celebration. <laughs> but uh, it, it's something special, because that's when the disciples stop dying. Comes along the Prichadash, one of the great commentators of the Shulchan Aruch, and he asks a very basic question. <clears throat> Prichadash says, you have to think about what exactly is it we're celebrating. If it's really because on the 33rd day of the Omer, that's when they stop dying, why is that a, a cause of celebration? Why did they stop dying on the 33rd day of the Omer? Because they were all dead. <laughs> Let's celebrate. Hey, cheers. They're all dead. That's why they stopped dying. It wasn't like the Megepha, the plague stopped and others were saved and they were all dead. So what are we celebrating? So explains the Prichadash. He says, perhaps, perhaps the joy of Lagba Omer is the, uh, the Simcha based on his five new students that he had afterwards. <clears throat> Shalom Mesu Ke'elu. His new five students didn't die like his other 24,000 students. Maybe that's the reason for the celebration. So sometimes we say, the question is better than the answer. And in this case, the Prichadosh is asking a very stark, a very strong question. But his answer is hard to, hard to grasp. We're celebrating the fact that he got five new disciples. But his whole yeshiva was, was wiped out. So question number one here is just, what exactly are we celebrating? Question number two, analyzing the quasi-mourning that we have during Sviris Omer, because many people passed away, I guarantee you, Right, the sad reality is, if you were to go to any day of the calendar, any week or any month of the Jewish calendar, and ask yourself, were there any, uh, any Jews that were killed during this time of year? Any, any pogroms? Any uh, persecution? The sad reality is, every single day is marked with blood. And you could argue, well, in this case, there were so many people in such a short amount of time. But again, sadly, we've had many, many cases throughout Jewish history where thousands of Jews have been killed in a short amount of time. So question number two is, why did we enact, why did we create this quasi-mourning period for this particular episode? There are many tragedies that we don't observe. Question number three if you take a look at what this time period is supposed to be, we're going from Pesach to Shavuos. What should my hargasha be? What should my feeling be right now? It should be one of anticipation, excitement. We're building up for Matan Torah. As the Sefer Chinuch speaks about, we're just looking forward to, to receiving the Torah. So by, by instituting this quasi-morning, what we're really doing is we're, we're taking away from what this time should be. We're shifting the focus. So question number one is, what is the Simcha of Lagba Omer? 
Wonderful they stopped dying. Wonderful that now he has five new disciples. It's still overall a tragic, a tragic situation. Question number two is, why do we have mourning at all? What's unique to this time when people have died all throughout history? And question number three is, doesn't it take away from the goal, from the basic intent of what we should be thinking about leading up to Shavuos? Comes along with Aaron Cutler, and he explains as follows. He says, when you read the words of the Gemara carefully, the Gemara is not mentioning or it's not focusing on the loss of life. Va'olam shameim, it says the Gemara, the, uh, the world was destroyed or desolate. It means the Torah world, the transmission of Torah, was in danger of being lost. They didn't have the printing press. This was likely the, the greatest yeshiva, both qualitatively and quantitatively in the world. It, it, it's almost as if, if, if you could imagine chas v'shalom hearing news that Iran launches a, a, a massive bomb into Eretz Yisrael, Lo Aleinu, and you have thousands and thousands of, of people learning Torah day and night killed. How do we go on? And at least in that case, you could argue, we, we have the Gemara, we have things in print. It was all Torah Shabal Peh. It was all relying on a system of, we believe in you, you who are transmitting the Torah, you who are carrying the Torah within. The Torah itself was in danger of being lost. The Simcha of Lag Omer explains of Aaron Cutler, isn't just that he found five new disciples, it's a wonderful thing, and they were massive Talmud Chachamim. But like the Gemara says, Vehem, Heim, Hemidu Torah. They were the ones that kept the Torah alive. Without Rabbi Akiva pushing forward, without him getting these five new disciples, the Torah would not have survived. The celebration of Lag Bomer is the continuity of Torah. Celebrating it during this time of year, explains of Aaron, doesn't take away from the energy, it only adds to the energy. Because we're reminding ourselves that without the Torah, we have nothing. Where we're being mechazig, we're strengthening that belief that when the Torah was in danger, that's as if our very lives are in danger as a nation, as a people, as individuals. So it doesn't take away from the energy, it adds to the time. The celebration of Lag Bomer is continuity of Torah. What I want to focus on tonight is a very basic question. It's more of a, of a humanistic question. How did Rebbe Akiva do it? It's clear from this Gemara that Rebbe Akiva was more than just the link in the chain of the, the oral tradition. Everything we have was dependent, it seems, on this one man. How did one man make such a massive change? How did he have the courage? How did he have the persistence? How did he have the tenacity to keep on pushing forward? Where did that come from? In order to explore this, what I'd like to do briefly is go over the origins, the history, the evolution of the man, Rebbe Akiva. And this is a story also many of us have heard before. The problem though with the story, as we'll see, is that there is, it's scattered throughout Shas. There are so many different Gemaras that give little vignettes, little snippets into his life, but trying to put them together, having a theory of everything, 
to explain the real life and, 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 and evolution of Rebbe Akiva, very difficult to do, but I like to try to do that. Rebbe Akiva himself went through disappointment, tragedy, personal loss. The Gemara in Mod Katan tells us that he had a child who passed away at a young age, and many people came to sit with him, to eulogize, and to, to mourn together with Rebbe Akiva. And as they were about to leave, Rebbe Akiva stood up on the stool, and he yelled out, Achenu beis Yisrael, my brothers, listen to me, even if I had two children who died, and even if they were both married, you were able to comfort me to such an extent, because you're not coming just for Akiva, you're not coming just for the man, but you're coming for the Torah that I have within me. And that means so much to me. So he went through a massive personal loss, but it's clear his character. Why did he stand up on the chair and let them know how, how beautiful it was for you to come sit shiva with me? Even in that moment where he's receiving, he's the chesed case, he needed to be mechazic others. He was able to somehow push through that and have in mind other people besides himself. He was the eternal optimist. Right? There's so many Gemaras that speak about his optimism. The famous Gemara in the end of Makos, <coughs> where he's standing there with his two colleagues, looking at the, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and, and they're crying and he's laughing, and he says, look, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy of destruction, and therefore we only have more confidence that we look forward to the fulfillment of the prophecies that the temple is going to be rebuilt. He was the eternal optimist. He was the one who coined the phrase, Gamzu Latov. Like we say nowadays, it's all good. It's all good. That comes from Rabbi Akiva. He was the Ohev Yisrael. He was just exuding love for Klal Yisrael. He was the one that said, the Klal Godel B'Torah, the greatest principle in Torah is, V'yahafta L'Recha Kamocha. That was his life, that was his mantra. He didn't just preach it, but he lived it. Besides going through personal tragedy, he also went through national tragedy. He was born in around the year 50 CE. That means when the second base of Migdash was destroyed, he was about 20 years old. Anyone alive in that period that made it through the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it was pretty much like going through the Holocaust, trying to rebuild. Then, a few years later, a few decades later, we have the revolt of Bar Kokhva, where we had this, this stronghold of Jews getting together, and there was a sense of optimism that maybe we'd be able to fight off the Romans. And it wasn't just the political thing, but Rabbi Akiva, the Rambam, tells us, as well as all the other great rabbis of his time, they were convinced that Bar Kokhva was the Mashiach, and through him he would usher in this new era of redemption. <coughs> the Rambam tells us in source number five, Rabbi Akiva and all of the rabbis of his time assumed that Bar Kokhva was the Mashiach. Ad Shenerag Ba'avonos Entel, Bar Kokhva died in battle. Kevan Shenerag Nodelahem She'ena. Once he was killed, he realized he's not Mashiach. But again, putting yourself in, in his shoes, you're living now with this ray of light, this, this hope. Things are going to change. We're going to get rid of the Romans. Mashiach is coming. Hashem is revealing himself. And then your leader dies, and you realize, no, you have nothing. You're still in the darkness of Gaulis. <coughs> There's an amazing Gemara in Menachos, 
that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was receiving the Torah, he was shown a prophecy of, of Rabbi Akiva in the future. And uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells him that Akiva ben Yosef Shmo, Moshe sees this vision of Rabbi Akiva teaching, and uh, Hashem tells him his name is Akiva ben Yosef. And Moshe Rabbeinu was so impressed with his level of chachma and depth, he was chalash daito, he almost felt like, how could I even compete with this? Chazor bolivne Kadosh Baruch Hu, and Moshe said to Hashem, Ribona shalolam, yesh lecha adam kezeh, if you have a human being like this, you're giving the Torah through me? Don't choose Moshe, choose Akiva. He's more fit for the job than I am. <laughs> so he was a master of, of everything. He was a master of Kabbalah as well. We know the famous Kabbalah Chagiga that tells us that there were four people that entered into the Pardes. Four great Tanayim that went into the, uh, the Kabbalistic teachings and the three of them didn't make it, and only Rabbi Akiva came out b'shalom. He was, he was unscathed by it. So he was a master emotionally, he was a master of nigla and nister, of all aspects of Torah. But what were his origins? How did he start off? And here we find conflicting reports. We have the famous Avastar of Nasim that tells us, it says, What was the beginning? What was the inspiration of Rabbi Akiva? So he was 40 years old, and seems to be telling us, he knew nothing. Nothing at all. One day, he's walking past this rock, and he sees the water that's falling onto the rock, and he looks closely, and he sees there's an indentation. And he thinks to himself for a moment, how is that possible? Every drop of water is doing pretty much nothing, but yet you have this, this hole in the rock. It's clearly penetrated this hard surface. Slavos so the Rav Nosen tells us he made a kavachomer. He told himself, one second, if water that's soft can penetrate the rock that's hard, so it must be Torah, which is kosher kabarzel. It's so powerful, I'm sure that can penetrate my heart. That was his moment of inspiration. <coughs> Almost Rav Nosen goes on to tell us, Miyad Chazer Lilmo Torah. Immediately he went back to learning Torah. The implication is pretty clear. If it's saying immediately he went back to learning, that means that he did learn at one point in time and he stopped learning. So even though he just said before, Lo Shana Klum, he knew nothing, but it sounds like he, he chose to know nothing. He started off. He was disenchanted, and uh, he left everything. This moment at the rock changed his whole perspective on himself and life, and Chazer Lil Motori went back to learning Torah. How did he do so? So Holachu Beno, he took his little boy with him, and they went and they sat by the Melamde Tinokos, by the Rebbeim who were teaching the children. And Rabbi Akiva said, he wasn't Rabbi at that point, he was just Akiva. He says to the, uh, the Rebbe, Rebbe, Lamdeni Torah, please teach me Torah. I'm going to sit here with the other seven-year-old boys and I want to learn. So he sits down and they teach him olive base. They teach him from the very beginning just how to read Hebrew. <coughs> and it sounds like he was consistent, he was diligent, and he kept on learning until, it says this expression, Ad Shalomad Kol HaTorah Kula, until the point where Rebbe Akiva gained the mastery of everything. What was his style of learning? So, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, 
Amr lehem, he now went to Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, who were great rabbis of the time, and he said to them, Rabosai pischili ta mishda. Now I want to be more sophisticated. Teach me all of the rulings of the Mishnah and how they fit together, the questions and the answer. Kivan achas, they would teach him one halacha. What would he do with that information? So most of us, when we hear something, we do this. Right, right? If it sounds right, you just nod and smile. Or, if you're teaching 11th graders, right, there's the this. But either way, we're not really taking it in. What did Rabbi Akiva do? Halach v'yashev beino l'beinatzmo. After learning one halacha, he would go by himself. Omer, alef zu lamenichtava. And he would look at the letter. This aleph. Why is it like this? Beis zu lamenichtava. Why is the base here? So he started off just with, with extreme patience and diligence, analyzing everything that he was hearing, trying to absorb it, taking his time, but ad shalomar kolha torakula, he was able to learn all of the Torah. We have to understand is, if he returned to learning based on this, this motivation by the rock, why did he leave learning in the first place? What was it about his learning Torah when he was younger that turned him off to Judaism? So I think there are actually two sources that give us a little bit of an insight to why he didn't like learning. The first is a letter of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he quotes this, this medrash in the Rebbe of Nosen, and he says, Ki Rabbi Akiva Beroso Mudo, when he started learning, he wasn't feeling anything. He didn't sense any change or transformation. And therefore, he was telling himself, Why am I toiling in this? It's not making me a better person. I'm not, I'm not you know, changing my midos. And therefore, I'm wasting my energy. He had a lot of energy. He was a very resourceful person. I don't want to waste my time doing this. I'm not feeling any change. That's what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta writes. <clears throat> However, we see from the Gemara in Psachim that it was more than that. It was more than just he wasn't feeling it, it wasn't resonating. He had very negative feelings towards the people who represented Torah. He tells his Talmudin, this is later on in life, he says, When I was ignorant, Amarti, I would tell people, If somebody would only bring me a Talmud Chacham, a rabbi, I want to bite him like a donkey. So Amr Lo Talmidov, his students asked the question, Why are you saying like a donkey? Right? The normal expression would be, You want to bite somebody like a dog. Why like a donkey? Rabbi Akiva responded back, it's very simple. Because a donkey, when it bites somebody, it also breaks its bones. A dog doesn't do that. So basically he was saying, I had so much resentment, I had so much animosity towards the rabbis, I would love to just get one of them in my hands and strangle them. Where did that come from? This is the same Rabbi Akiva who is defined elsewhere, as refined and modest and humble, but yet he's expressing this real sinna, this real hatred towards Tamil Chachamim. 
So Tosos explains, he says, likely, why did Rabbi Akiva feel this way towards the rabbis? Source number 11. It's not that he had a vendetta. It's not that he had this whole agenda, I'm here to take down the, the rabbis. But rather he felt that the rabbis were arrogant. Because of the Torah learning they had, he felt there was a holier-than-thou perspective, and they're looking down on me. So he didn't hate them for no reason. He had this feeling because he sensed that they were looking down on him. They were balegaiva, they were arrogant. So likely when Ovost Rav Nassim tells us he went back to learning Torah, the reason he left learning in the first place was, number one, he wasn't getting a gishmak. It wasn't feeling good. He didn't notice anything. And number two, he didn't appreciate the rabbis looking down on him. And he figured, what's the point? If this is what Torah produces, I want nothing to do with it. That's why he left learning in the first place. <clears throat> Yet we have a different story, a different record of what took place with Rabbi Akiva. And this is the Gemara and Ksubis. The Gemara and Ksubis tells us that Rabbi Akiva was one of the head shepherds of Kalba Savua. Kalba Savu was one of the, the wealthiest men of the time. Chose Barte, the daughter of Kalba Savua, she's not named in the Gemara, but we know her name from later sources. Her name was Rachel. <clears throat> she sees Akiva working as one of the many shepherds that was employed by her father. Dahavat Tsaniya Mali. She saw two things that he was Tsanua, he was modest, he was humble. And he, he was refined, he was dignified. The, the Masha explains that Mishum Sniya Sumali, because she noticed these qualities, and therefore he was Noach Lebrios, he was the kind of person that people would respect and would like to be around. It must be that he's Noach Lemakom, that he has the potential to be loved by Hashem as well. There's one problem. He was lacking learning. He didn't, he didn't know anything yet. That was the one thing he was lacking. But she saw potential. So therefore she approaches him and she makes the deal. She says, I would love to be married to you on the condition that you decide to learn Torah. So Omer La, in. He says back, I'm in. Now it sounds like from the, the superficial reading of the Gemara, it was a quick conversation. She gives the, uh, the suggestion, here's the condition, I'd love to marry you if you go and learn. And he said, yes, let's pick a wedding date. What they end up doing is they do Kedushin, that's the first part of marriage, and they do so sin in a private way because they were very afraid of Kalba Savu, of her father. He would have nothing to do with an ignoramus. He wanted her to marry a Talmud Chacham. However, he hears about it, and he's enraged. I can't believe she went against the, my will. She married someone who was unlearned, and therefore he made a netter. He took an oath that she cannot benefit from my property whatsoever. She'll have to make it on her own. At this point in life, to make it on your own, when your husband's not with you, it's a difficult thing to do. 
to add salt to the wound, the Gemara says, Shamelahu Saba. This is now years later. Rabbi Akiva's been away, according to the Gemara, for 12 years. He comes back with 12,000 disciples, and he's about to say hello to his wife. But he overhears this old person speaking to his wife, Rachel. Now the phrase, Lahahu Saba, that Saba, usually that's a reference to none other than Elio Anavi. So according to some, according to the Ben Ishchai, this was actually Eliyohan Novi coming down in the, in the form of an image of an old man, making fun and mocking Rachel, basically telling her, look at what kind of life you live. You're like a, a, a widow trapped, your husband's away. And she says back to this old person, you know what? And if he would stay another 12 years, I'd be fine with that also. I would encourage that. Rabbi Kiva overhears this, and he takes her up on the offer, and he goes and he learns for years and years more. He now comes back, it's been 24 years, according to the Gemara, and he's now coming with his whole entourage of 24,000 Talmidim. And this is a scene to behold. The, the word goes out in the city that this massive Talmud Chacham is coming, and uh, people go out to greet him, and she goes out as well. Her neighbors ask her, you know what, maybe you should uh, put on something nice. You haven't seen your husband in, in 24 years. Maybe you should put on some makeup, put in a nice you know, blouse, something. And uh, she responds back, no, Yodei tzaddik nefesh behemto. She quotes the verse in Mishlei, very cryptic, that tzaddik, the righteous one, understands nefesh behemto, literally that means the, the spirit of his animal. Okay. She goes out, and you could imagine it was a very emotional reunion. She runs over to him, and she starts kissing his legs. At that point, you could imagine his chassidim seeing this lady, random person, run up and start kissing your Rebbe. What are you doing? Please leave him alone. And he says the famous words, Amr lehu shavkuha. Leave her be. Don't, don't shoo her away. You should know that whatever I've attained, whatever you've gotten from me, it's all because of her. Her father hears about this Gavra Rabba, this big rabbi that's come to the village, and he wants to annul his vow because he can't stand seeing his daughter suffer. So he says, maybe you would be the one to, to find a way, to find the Pesach, some way of being mater neder. And he says to, uh, to Kalba Savua, if you would have known that the guy that she married would become a Talmud Chacham, would you have made that vow? Kalba Savua says back, he didn't have to become a Talmud Chacham. Even if he would learn something, if, if, if I would have known that he could do anything in Libat HaTorah, I would never have made that vow. And Akiva says the words back to Kalba Savua, guess what? I'm Akiva. Kalba Savua is blown away. So what we have here though is a few basic questions, just trying to put these stories together. <clears throat> Question number one is, what was the starting point of Rabbi Akiva? According to Ovas the Rev Nassim, it sounds like it was that rock inspiration. He sees the water on the rock. Okay, I want to go back and give it a second try. 
According to the Gemara Ksubis, it sounds like it was based on the offer to marry Rachel. And that's why he went to go learn Torah. That's question number one. Now you could argue maybe they were both contributing factors, but in Ovos the Rav Nassim it says clearly, who did he go learn Torah with? He took his son with him. He had a son at that point in time that was old enough to learn at least olive base. So that clearly seems to say he only started learning after he was married, but yet the Gemara Ksubis is saying he only started in order to marry her. That's question number one. Question number two is, just looking at the rock episode, if you didn't like learning beforehand because you weren't feeling it, and you had a bitter, negative perspective on the rabbis, what, what got you thinking along these lines? There were many other people that saw that exact same rock with the water dripping. It's kind of cool. Why, why did he think about it in, 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 in terms of learning Torah, penetrating his heart? How did he even get there by this particular visual? That's question number two. <clears throat> question number three is a question posed by Rabbi Yosef Chai in Baghdadi, known as the Ben Chai, in his Sefer Ben Yoyada. And he has a very basic question on Rachel. Why did Rachel want to marry Akiva? Was it because he was just so incredibly handsome, and it was love at first sight, it was infatuation? That's not where Rachel's coming from. Why did she want to marry him? The Gemara says, because she saw fine qualities in this human being. He's modest, he's refined. So says the Ben Ishchai, I'm sure at this point in time, right, we're talking about the time of the Tanoim, you have rabbis who are authoring the Mishnah, you have major personalities, and I'm sure many of them have wonderful midos also. Many of them are modest, and many of them are very, very refined people. Why are you going for Rebbe Akiva? Well, he has potential. Don't go for potential. Go for someone who actually is a Talmud Chacham, who's been learning for many years. And why are you doing something you know clearly is against your father's will? Don't disobey your dad. Find a nice young man that he will approve of. When it comes to Shaduchim, she had everything going for her. She was coming from a wealthy family. She was coming from a family that had chashivas. They had this, this feeling of importance for Torah learning. That she would find a nice young man and support him learning for the next 40 years. Why is she choosing Rebbe Akiva? last question is, the end of the story is very funny. I get it that it's an emotional reunion, but for her to get down and start kissing her husband in public, if you're the kind of person who appreciates Sneas, why are you kissing your husband in public? Now this is really a whole separate conversation we could say for a different sheer, but it's clear from many sources that showing physical affection in public is something that we don't do. It's not appropriate. It creates hehurim. It creates this, this feeling amongst those who are watching that we don't want to do. We want to have a pure environment. So just putting these sources together, trying to get clarity on what actually happened with Rebbe Akiva's rise to the top, question number one is, what was the inspiration? Was it the rock and he went to go learn with his son or was it the marriage offer? Question number two is, if it, whatever the rock, whatever took place there, why was he thinking along those lines? How did you even think in that realm? Question number three, 
Why did Rachel pursue Rabbi Akiva over one of so many other options? And question number four, why are you kissing your husband in public? So Baruch Hashem, I found this Ben Yoyada. The Ben Yishchai lived in the 1800s, and he was a revolution within the Svarti world. He was a master of Nigla and Nister. He was a master Kabbalist. And he approaches this whole story of Rabbi Akiva, and he has the following question. This is what he says. He's focusing on why did she choose Akiva? That was our third question. Why did she choose Akiva over anybody else? So he explains as follows. She was a wise young lady. And she understood, of course, I can marry anybody. And I'll share in their schos of learning Torah, because the husband and wife, they're partners, they're working together. But I'm not creating somebody. I'm not participating in bringing somebody from here to here. I'm joining along and hopefully we'll work together to help maximize our potential, all the things we say about a marriage. With Akiva, because she saw the potential, she felt the sense of achrayis, a sense of responsibility. I could marry a great guy, but more than that, I could change his life forever. And perhaps by changing his life, I could have an impact in Klal Yisrael. You never know. You never know. That's why she wanted to marry Akiva, even though she knew full well that her dad would not be on board, she understood this was the right thing to do. Ben Ishchai continues, and he says, how do we reconcile the story from Avos the Ravnos and the story of the Gemara Ksubis? So this is an amazing thing, that Rebbe Akiva was married before, and in a previous marriage, he had he had children. He had sons and daughters. His first wife passed away. And only afterwards did he meet the daughter of Kalba Savua. He had the interaction with Rachel. And at that point in time, she told him, she gave him this condition, this idea, let's get married, assuming you go and learn Torah. Then he had the encounter with the rock. Even though it sounds like he answered right off the bat, I'm in, let's pick a wedding date. He didn't answer. He wasn't impetuous. She's basically saying, I'll marry you on condition that you change your life forever. Usually going into a marriage, that's not a smart thing to do. Right? For both parties. If I'm waiting for you to change, I'll be waiting a long time. And if you're going in assuming that you're going to change, likely you're not. So he did not answer on the spot, says the Ben Ishchai. He said, let me think about it. That's why it was on his mind. That's why it was, it was there on the, on the subconscious and the conscious. That's why when he's passing by this rock, something that's pretty much a par of scene, but he's thinking about how can this relate to me? He's thinking about the biggest question in his life right now. That's how he had that hisorus. That's how he had that, that awakening within him. And he thought, you know what? It's true it wasn't gishmak, it didn't feel good in the beginning. And it's true I've had this negative feeling towards rabbi since I was young. But let me give it a shot. Maybe I can't dismiss it just because it didn't work. Maybe it's something that needs consistency. Maybe it's something that needs not just days, but it needs years. Let me approach it in a, in a very slow, 
methodological way, feeling that I just take it step by step. And that's what he did. He took his son, meaning his son from his previous marriage, and they went to learn. They started off in the first grade, and he worked his way up. Ad shalomar kol ha Why did she kiss him in public? And what exactly was her answer? I don't need to get dressed up in nice clothing or look good because the tzaddik knows nefesh behemto. Explains the Ben Ishchai. I'll read you the words. Ein avaso imi ava gufnis. She was explaining that his love for me, it's not about the physical attraction. gufi, And therefore there's no need for me to put on makeup for him. What we have is so much deeper. It's an avas nefesh. You want to talk about a true love story of Akiva and Rachel? This is the love story. It's an avas nefesh. He knows that we're partners, not just in this world, but we're zugos. We're partners in the olam neshamos. We have a kesher shel We'll be together forever. And that's why, although it was incredibly difficult to be separated for so many years, how could she send her husband away? It's because she had that perspective on life. We're going to be together forever. This is a little tiny blimp, nothing. Therefore, the kisses were nothing inappropriate. Not going to cause anyone to think anything in there. It was so pure, it was so holy, it was just an expression of the neshama, it was just beautiful, and that's all there was. So we had the question originally, if the celebration of Lag Bomer is the continuity of Limud HaTorah, and that all comes back down to one man, how did that one man do it? The answer seems to be very simple. Because that one man had one woman. It's an amazing thing. It all goes back to that initial thought process. I could choose one of hundreds of guys and be very happy and make my parents proud. But I have an opportunity to influence somebody. I have the opportunity to change someone's life forever. And she did, and that changed Klal Yisrael. It didn't just change us, but Haim, Haim, Haimidu Torah, he became the pillar, he became the link in all of the Torah that we have nowadays through one young lady wanting to change someone's life. Obviously, Rav Nosson tells us that when we go up and we meet Hashem, if we want to use the excuse, the reason why we didn't have a chance to learn Torah is because we were so busy making a living. It was just, it's so crazy how many hours a day and the stress and the hassle. I didn't have a chance. So Hashem will say back, I understand. But Rabbi Akiva, he was extremely poor. He was dirt poor for years, but he was able to push. He was able to learn. What are you going to answer back to that? The only potential answer we have to defend ourselves, explains the Ovas Reb Nassim, is we could say back, one second, Mipnei shezachse Rachel ishto. He had something that we don't have. He had Rachel. He had that secret weapon. But it's clear from this response that she was a major player in everything he accomplished. Share an amazing story. From, uh, from Rav Usher Weiss. Rav Usher Weiss is one of the, the great postkim in, in the world right now. <coughs> and uh, his father, Rav Moshe Weiss, was very close with the Klausenberger Rebbe. 
he was a young man. It was the Thursday, the first day of Shavuos in 1945. He was dropped off by the train in Birkenau. And uh, he, he realizes that he's only one building away from where the Klausenberger Rebbe is. He never met the Klausenberger Rebbe before, but uh, he wanted to do anything to be in the same, the same building. So he was able to trade places with somebody else. Right? Moshe Weiss was 17 years old. And he makes his way to the Klausenberger Rebbe. And he says, Rebbe, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be with you. The Rebbe says back to little Moshe, this is, if you're looking for Shmira, you're looking for protection, just because you're with me, that doesn't mean anything. I can't promise you anything. And Moshe says back to the Klausenberger Rebbe, no, but we're going to learn Torah together. Learn Torah? In Auschwitz, you can learn Torah? Moshe said back, a teenage boy, said, if we don't learn Torah, we have no choice. <laughs> what else are we going to do to survive? We've got to learn. That was the first moment Klausenberger Rebbe picked up there's something special about this young man. Little Moshe Weiss was a chassid. He was a, a, a real disciple of the Klausenberger Rebbe throughout the entire war. He was with him by his side, from Birkenau to Warsaw, they went there together when they were cleaning up the rubble from the, the Warsaw uprising, to Dachau, to Ditzi, to Mirdorf, all the way until they were liberated together. They were in the DP camp together, and the Klausenberger Rebbe made the announcement that the first mitzvah we need to do is a chesed shalemis. We have to take care of all of the dead bodies. There's so many dead bodies that are just laying there. And they were stricken with disease and disgusting, but let's give them a kavurus Yisrael. We have to bury them in the proper way. So nobody volunteered. You can imagine it's a hard thing to volunteer to be osik in, in helping dead bodies when we ourselves are barely living. Moshe Weiss, that was right there with him. And they volunteered together. They had this American jeep. They had a soldier drive them around. They would take care of the dead, and eventually they made it their goal and their mission to take care of the living to build Torah together, to build mikvos and shuls and yeshivas in America and then eventually in Eretz Yisrael. Moshe Weiss approaches the Klausenberger Rebbe after a few years and he says, you know what? It, it's, it's been so amazing having this shimush, having this, this time with you, but I haven't opened a Gemara in two years. I've got to get back to learning. Klausenberger Rebbe turned to Ramosha Weiss and he said, You should know, you have no clue what Mesiris Nefesh means. You have no clue what it means to really sacrifice. You think it's sacrificing, not eating and not drinking, and that's a nice thing. That's Mesiris Aguf. Mesiris Nefesh means sometimes for the benefit of the Jewish people, you even have to close the Gemara. So upon receiving those instructions, Ramosha continued together with the Klausenberger Rebbe, building Torah. And the Klausenberger Rebbe turned to Ramosha, he was probably at this time in his early 20s, and he said, I want to give you a bracha. So he thought for a moment. Ramosha said, could the Rebbe give me a bracha that all of my sons should be tremendous tchamide chachamim. They should be ligging in everything. They should have a knowledge of everything. And the Klausenberg Rebbe gave the bracha that your boys should illuminate the world with the light of their Torah. Now the amazing thing is, if you know the sons of Ramosha Weiss, or of Usher Weiss being 
One of them, yes, they are illuminating the world with their Torah. The bracha was mekuyim. The bracha came to fruition. But what's more inspirational, I think, than the bracha actually coming to fruition, is the fact that this was on his mind when he's 21 years old. You want a bracha? My bracha is, I want my kids to be Talmud Chachamim. 60 years later, Asher Weiss relates that he was going on a trip to Poland and he figured he would ask his father if he wanted to come with. His father at this point was 80 years old. It's been now more than 60 years. And he was assuming that he would say no, he was too weak, and you know, maybe emotionally it was going to be too much. But his father said yes. And they go to Poland together, and they go back to the same train tracks, the same place. That was the last time his father saw his mother and his father and five other siblings. They went to the right, he and one brother went to the left, and that's how he survived the war. Ramosha Weiss told his son, Rav Asher Weiss, he said, I want to share with you the last words that my father shared with me, the last time I saw him. He said, Moshe, watch over your brothers. Now, he was referring to, he had two brothers, Heshi and, and, and the Yechiel. But the way that Ramosha Weiss understood those instructions from his father, watch over your brothers is much more than my blood siblings. But watch over Klal Yisrael. Whatever we could do to be mechazek, to strengthen, to uplift, to motivate, to teach, to inspire another Jew, that we have to do everything we possibly can. That was the mantra of Ramosha Weiss. That's the life of Ramosha Weiss. Akiva, Rebbe Akiva, likely the greatest hero in all of Jewish history, who was the, the, the main link in the chain to why we have Torah nowadays, it all came from that same perspective. What can I do? I have to keep on pushing. I'm not going to now crawl under my covers and cry because my yeshiva is decimated. I'm going down to the south. I'm going to find five new Talmudim and we'll start again. But we're going to keep on pushing because it's not about me. It's about Klal Yisrael. What can I contribute? If I'm still alive, I still have energy, I still have the brain capacity, let me do as much as I can. Where did that come from? It sounds like a large part of that came from Rachel. Good job.